when is Easter this year? Oh, hey, I, I guess being a pastor, I should probably know when Easter is, right? Isn't it interesting? We have year-round Christmas stores, Christmas in July, and while Halloween used to hold at bay Christmas in the malls and stores, it seems it's losing its resolve. Man, we build up to Christmas for two, three months, and yet we often don't even know when Easter is. Well, yeah, it doesn't help that the date changes every year, but hey, Easter's our great hope, our great opportunity. And while there's certainly not the buildup in our culture for Easter that we have for Christmas, and that's probably okay, there certainly should be a buildup for Christ's followers. Easter's an opportunity to talk about Jesus, the gospel, the church, and those are increasingly difficult topics to bring up in our culture, but Easter gives us a bit of a chance there. I want to encourage us to use Easter this year. Instead of complaining and grieving about our culture, speak the gospel to it. Do this. Think about five people. Call them your Easter five. So here's going to be our build-up to Easter. Number one, make my Easter five list. Number two, pray for them each day that they're open to the gospel, to an invitation for their good and well-being. Hey, do something for them. That's number three. Number four, invite them to be with you at one of our Easter services. You know, if every one of us did this, even if they say no to our invitation, that's still over 10,000 people that we've been praying for, doing something good for, and inviting to be with us at Easter, meaning we're engaging them in the conversation of Easter. I believe that can do a whole lot more for our culture than about anything. Hey, let's give it a try. Happy Easter. I tell you, folks, I, I get energized, excited, thinking about could we right now really be praying for 10,000 people? And, and what kind of impact that could have? Because I believe in prayer. I, ho I hope you do too. But now that 10,000 doesn't uh, just mystically fall out of the sky, does it? That, that actually implies that you and I have an Easter 5, that we're actually working on a list. And I'll be honest with you, I have two right now. I've two, I just got kind of two names that I've landed on. And I had three, but my, my wife took one of them. I mean, she didn't take them from me. She had them, and I was like, ah, I had them on my list. So now, now I'm back down to two. But we're two weeks away from Easter, so it, it really is kind of time like right now to begin thinking about, hey, who could I be praying for? Who could I do a, a good deed, a, a kind work in their life this week? And, and who could I invite to be with me on Easter Sunday? Do we really believe this is an opportunity for our culture to, to speak the gospel into it. We have a tool for you uh, on your way out today. You probably noticed it on the way in at all the doors. Uh, we've got tables with baskets, and on those baskets are, are these cards. One side is uh, the Easter logo that we're using this year. And then on the, on the other side, it's a list of our um, services that weekend, two on Saturday, three on Sunday, our address, and, and our website. So I hope on the way out, you'll get two, three, four, five of these and uh, use them to hand out at work, at school, in your neighborhood. And, uh, I, you know, since we're saying that we're praying for these 10,000 and we're going to maybe put these invitations in their hands, why don't we have a time of prayer for that right now and just ask God to bless the hands that these are going to end up in, shall we? Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you this moment. And uh, Lord, you know, I, I really feel like you've led me to two names that I want to be focused on these next two weeks. Uh, Lord, I'd, I'd like to be all in there and get three more. And I just ask for your guidance for that. And I, I pray the same for every person in this room. Lord, I, I pray that right now we are genuinely thinking of, uh, of two, three, four, five names. And Lord, I don't know how you do it. You're, you're God. But as we think of these names, you, you can think along with us on each one of these names. Gosh, this room alone, just right here, right now, would, would represent thousands and thousands of people. And you, you know where each one of those people are. You, you know what's going on in their lives and what the need is. Lord, would you show us, guide us in, in how we can pray for them. Guide us in maybe a good deed we can do in their lives in, in this week or two ahead. Father, I pray you'd create an opportunity where we could, could invite them to be with us. Maybe at Palm Sunday next Sunday in the Lord's Supper. Or maybe it's the following weekend at Easter. But, but Father, would you give us a kind of an, a, a door into their lives where we could feel comfortable maybe talking about Jesus and our church and, and who you are and what you're doing. Father, I, I, you know every hand these invitations are going to land in, and I pray it will be a blessing in their lives. I pray it's a blessing to the hands that get these cards and deliver them. And Lord, I pray it's a blessing where each of these cards lands, and you will do with that what you want. God, hear our prayers. God, see these invitations and these cards, and, and God, we lay all this at your feet. We ask that you do with them as you will, and that we'll see your, your glory fall and your work happen in the midst of all of these people. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing today. And I say continuing. We're actually finishing today this series that we've been in. This is the gospel. Where we have been looking at a, a biblical definition of the gospel. And I don't know about y'all. But man, it has really just quickened my affections for Christ. Uh, helping me just think afresh about who he is, what he did for me, all that he did for me, just kind of expanding on that understanding. And man, I hope it's had the same impact, the same effect in your lives. If you're, if you're new here today or maybe hadn't been in a while, we, we have been. Today's our, our third Sunday of looking at a biblical definition of the gospel. And I use the word biblical for, for this reason. It, it's not my definition. This is not something I've come up with as a, as a way of presenting the gospel. It's, it's not something a denomination nation believes but really from God's word when it when it says here's the definition here it is that's that's what we're looking at and we've been getting that out of first Corinthians 15 as a matter of fact if you want to turn there in your bible now we're going to be there in just a moment first Corinthians in your new testament kind of near the end of your bible first Corinthians 15 and uh, or or bring that up on a bible app if you want but we have been using this passage because we find a definition of the gospel there. And that definition gives us three distinct pieces. So two Sundays, the prior two, we've already looked at two of those pieces. One of the pieces of, of a biblical definition is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. His blood and death for my blood and death. If you were here two Sundays ago, you know we looked at why blood? Why death? That's weird. I mean, who, 
Who came up with that idea? Well, we, we looked in Scripture and we saw why God said blood, death is the cost, the price of sin. And we saw in that it's a price I can't pay. I mean, I can. It can be my blood and death, but I can't recover from it. I mean, if, if justice is done and I pay for my sin, I can't recover from that. Because if I physically die in my sins, then I move into eternal separation from God. But that's where God in his love sent his son Jesus. Jesus stepped into my place, his blood and death for mine. Jesus Christ died for our sins. The second piece of the definition we saw is that he was buried. You know, I, that, that's a word, that's an idea that to me I be honest with you, I never really attached that to the gospel. That was just like, you know, extra information, kind of obvious information. Of course, if you die, you're going to be buried. But boy, we kind of unwrapped that last week and realized there's a lot going on there. See, our mistake is we tend to think of death. We, you know, we close our eyes and we just cease to exist. We, we close our eyes and there's, there's no more consciousness. But nowhere in the scripture do you find that to be the case. Nowhere in the scripture does death mean a cessation of existence. When Jesus closed his eyes on the cross, he didn't enter into three days of unconsciousness. He, he didn't enter into a, a cessation of existence for a period of time. No, he, he went to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. That's the, the Greek and the Hebrew words. They both mean the same thing, the, the place of the dead. And we went to Luke 16, where we saw a description of that. And we saw that place defined with words like anguish and torment and, and flames. Man, as I, as I realized what Jesus was doing during that time, I, you know, the thought that came to my mind is, man, not only did Jesus make a real payment, because that's what justice demands. Justice isn't a game. Not, not only did Jesus make a real payment for my sin, he made the full payment. He didn't get a discount here. He made a full payment for my sins. Today we come to the third part of the definition, the best part, I think, at least the most hope-filled part, and that is Jesus Christ was resurrected. He is alive. Let's look. Yeah. Okay. That's exciting for 12 of us. Super. All right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and see how this is wrapped into our definition. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 as I have done the last couple of weeks. Uh, remember 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 is where we kind of find our definition, where we focus on. Let me begin 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Okay, that's the subject that's what I'm getting ready to write about. That's what I want us to think on. That's what I want us to remember. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received. Well, if I could just stop right there like I have the prior two Sundays and ask that question. Have you received the gospel? You know, sometimes we tend to, to think of that if you kind of grew up in church, uh, you tend to think of that as some moment you had back there in your life at, at vacation Bible school or youth camp or maybe sitting in a Sunday morning service. And I, I think back to that date, 35 years ago for me, I think back there to that date and say, yeah, I received the gospel. But this passage also challenged us, you didn't receive it in vain, did you? And we talked about, you know, receiving the gospel is not something, it shouldn't be something that is just something I did back there. 
But rather that gospel moves forward with me. I I don't leave it as an event that I had in my life back there. But as I move forward into life, the gospel goes with me. And I look at verse 2 and 3 here. It's something I stand on. It's something I hold on to that I cling to. You know, when I think of, am I standing on that? When I think of receiving the gospel, three ideas come to my mind. I am loved. I am forgiven. And I've got an awesome future. I might be having a good day, a bad day. I might be relating to a good person. I might be relating to a bad person. I might have a good memory. I might be struggling with a bad memory. But whatever it is, I'm standing on this. I'm loved, I'm forgiven, and I have an awesome future. I think that's what it means to stand on the gospel. Every day I'm clinging to the gospel. Boy, you know what? Even, especially if it was for you 35 years ago, If you're like me, you've had a few less than proud moments since then, right? You've had a few moments where you weren't walking real close to Christ and you, maybe you wonder, how could he still love me? How could, how could he forgive me? And, and we tend to get maybe bogged down in shame or guilt or maybe we kind of gear ourselves up. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to, I'm going to perform well. That's not standing on the gospel. Standing on the go, yeah, I want to work hard and I want to perform well, but not because I'm trying to win God's approval. I have it. I stand on this. I am loved and I am forgiven and I have an awesome future because of Jesus' performance, because of Jesus' goodness for me. Have you received the gospel? Well, let's see what that gospel is. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There's Paul's testimony. Hey, I've received the gospel What I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, that's not James the apostle, that's James the half-brother, to Jesus. You know what's interesting about that is James, when Jesus was, was walking on the earth, when he, you know, they were growing up in a home, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. J- James did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, he thought his brother was crazy. He actually said, we need to get him out of the public light. He's an embarrassment to the family. Somebody, we got to go get him. Then he saw Jesus resurrected. And he said, my Messiah and my Lord. And now he's giving a witness to what he has seen. To to, to James and then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The reason Peter, I mean, uh, Paul says it that way, all of Jesus' appearances appear from the time he was resurrected on Sunday to the time he ascended back to heaven with the Father. Paul was not in that group. Jesus actually came back from heaven and appeared to Paul and kind of set Paul on his course. And so we have here, folks, a a definition of the gospel. We call the gospel, of course, that word literally interpreted means good news. And this is the good news. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He went to the place of the dead, making a full payment. There's nothing I need to add to it. It, it's It's not that Jesus got me almost all the way there. Now, if I'll just pick it up from here. No, he made a full 
payment for my sins. And then he was resurrected. He rose again, conquering sin and death and hell. And folks, then, then he appeared. He appeared giving evidence to what he had done. Evidence for his victory for them. Evidence for his victory for you and for me. He is alive. He is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. Now we look at our definition here. You notice it's bookended. Did you notice it says the same phrase twice, according to the scriptures. It starts the definition that way. It ends the definition that way, according to the scriptures. Two things are happening with that. One, Paul is anchoring this definition in the voice of God. It's God's voice. He's saying, hey, listen, this isn't something that, you know, all of us important apostles got together and we voted on a good definition We didn't look up in the, in the Bible dictionary and and then I brought it over into here. No, this definition, what I'm communicating to you comes from the voice of God. It is breathed out by God. It is the inspired word of God. So it tells us where the definition comes from. But I think another thing that Paul is doing here is he's saying, Hey, listen, this idea of a, of a, a, a savior, a messiah that would die on a cross, that, that, that would be resurrected, that, that you and I could be resurrected. Hey, listen, this isn't just an idea that God just thought about. Man, we have, I've been trying to figure out this sin problem for 2,000 years. I can't, oh, let's try this. <laughs> this isn't just another attempt of God to, to get this taken care of. No, according to the scriptures, this is what God has always been saying. This is where God has always been going. He's always held out to you and I the Messiah. He has always held out to you and I the opportunity of the resurrection. Always. Now when we say always, when we say according to the scriptures, we're saying what? The Old Testament. Well, is that true? Does the Old Testament communicate that? As you might imagine, I went to the Old Testament and found a few places for us to see that. Look what it says up here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life because life and death is in His hands. It's always in His hands. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. Who did God take down to Sheol and then raise up but His own Son, Jesus Christ? A prophecy, prefiguring, pre-shadowing what he was going to do with his own son. Then we have Job. I love this passage here. Now, first of all, before we read this, and you're already reading it, but Job is the first book written in the Bible. I know you and I tend to think Genesis, right? Because when I open up my Bible to page one, there's Genesis. Well, Genesis is there for thematic purposes. What's in Genesis? The beginning of everything. Well, where do you put that? At the beginning of the book. But the first book written, the first time God reveals himself in written form, okay? I'm not saying God had never revealed himself, never shown people who he was. I'm saying the first time he did that in written form was Job. And this is about five or six hundred years before we get to to Moses and and the patriarchs. This is about 2000 B.C. So in the very first time God is revealing himself, look what is said here. I know, Job says, I know that my Redeemer, my Redeemer lives. That's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm hoping in. A Redeemer, it's kind of a a financial term really. It's the idea of kind of being deep in debt. 
I mean, really, like I'm never actually going to get out of it. I need somebody to come in and redeem me. I need somebody to buy me out of this. And a lot of times, as you can imagine, in this world and in history, when you got in that kind of trouble, you also got into slavery. So a redeemer was often a person who would come and buy somebody out of slavery. You can kind of translate this over into a spiritual idea. Folks, we need to be bought out of our sin. We need to be bought out of our slavery to sin, our slavery to death. Very first message of God. Man, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's what I'm counting on. And at last, He will stand upon the earth. I'm counting on seeing this Redeemer. I'm counting on seeing this Redeemer walk on the earth with me. Folks, this is a first prof- one of the first prophecies of a Messiah. One of the first prophecies of God coming like you and me and doing what he did. And after my skin has thus been destroyed because, well, that's what happens to our skin when we die, right? We start to, uh, what's the Latin word? Rot. Yeah, we, we, we lay there and we start to rot and we start to decay and we, 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 we start to, to turn to dust. No, but look at this. Even though that has seemingly happened, no, 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 no. Yet in my skin, in my skin will I see God. Look at this, all that is in this line, the idea of a Messiah, of a Redeemer, the idea that I'll see God in the flesh, that I, even after my death, that is going to happen. Then we have a prophecy in Psalm, a, a very direct prophecy of the Messiah, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. I'm going to go there, but Father, you're not going to abandon me there. You're not going to allow your Holy One. That's the title of the Messiah. That title doesn't apply to any, any earthly person person that that title applies to Jesus you'll not let your holy one see corruption I might go there but you'll raise me up and then Daniel this is now we're about four or five hundred years removed from the New Testament and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt see how clear and consistent the Bible is you know it's Over 1,400 years the scripture was written by over 40 different authors on three different continents. And yet those books all come together and it reads like one story consistently from beginning to end. And what it says from beginning to end is we're going to live forever. Every person here is going to live forever. The question is not whether you live forever. The question is where. The question is what your experience will be in that place. And what God holds out to you and me is the opportunity with eternal li- to, for eternal life with Him. You see, when we chose sin, when I chose to be God, I don't need to listen to anybody's rules. I can do things my way. I can do things in my time. I can think what I want to think about God. I can think what I want to think about after I, I can make all those own decisions for myself. When we sin, we brought death into the world. But God, in His choice to love, in His choice to forgive, brought a new opportunity for you and for me to life and to life eternal. In sending his son, he shows us, yes, his love and that he would send his son to die for us, but he shows us his justice in that, in that justice doesn't pretend like sin didn't happen. Justice doesn't pretend like the wrong is not there, but love comes and pays for it. And in the resurrection, God shows his power. 
his power over sin, his power over death. Look at what Romans chapter 1 verse 1 says. The gospel of God, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here, See the consistency again? This isn't something I'm just making up. This isn't brand new. This has always been said through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures about what? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. As for the human side of Jesus, the human part of Jesus, he came through the family line of David according to the flesh though and was declared, was proved, was shown to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God shows his power in raising Jesus Christ. His power for you and for me. His power. His power to conquer sin and death and hell. Folks, think of what this helps us kind of sort through and figure out. I mean, there's a pretty big, some pretty big questions out there. Where, where did I come from? Why am I here? What, what, where am I going? And mankind has come up with whole bunch of religions, a whole bunch of philosophies, a whole bunch of ideas to try to answer those questions. But how do you know which one is right? I mean, I got one life. I'm not real smart. I kind of want to land on the right answer here. It seems, it seems like a lot could be riding on this. How do you know which one is right? And of course, the, the world comes along to you and says, don't worry about it. Just pick one. Just pick one. They're all right. That they're all ultimately going to get you to the same place. Hey, one may go up the south side of the mountain. The other may go up the north side of the mountain. But hey, we're all just trying to get to the top of the mountain. Respect each other. Respect each one's way to get there. That sounds so nice, doesn't it? Sounds tolerant and so respectful. If the goal is getting to a top of a mountain... If that's the goal, then yes, hey, how you choose to get up there, how I choose to get up there. But folks, the goal is not to get to the top of a mountain. And all these religions and ideas, and when I say religions and ideas, you know, we're talking about Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism. But you add to that atheism, add to that secularism, naturalism, they're all answering questions. But the world says they're all the same. No, they actually have very, very different ideas of, of who a God is or what a God is like. Even contradictory ideas. There's no way they can be saying the same thing because it's a, it's a contradiction. They, they have different ideas about what the afterlife is. Even contradictory ideas. How do you sort through all that? How can you possibly land on, on, on a right answer? Well, I know this, of all those religions, all those ideas, only one idea, only one person died for me. Only one idea, only one person rose again, conquering death, conquering the grave. I don't know, but for me, that just kind of helps me hone in on where I need to go. Jesus Christ was resurrected. And I get, I, I, I get that a lot of the world's going to look at that and say, yeah, that, that's nice. Put that over there with the other myths and legends, even fairy tales. But you know what, folks? You can't put Christianity over there. You can't put the resurrection over there. And one of, it, one of the reasons is because in this definition, we see all this evidence. We see all these appearances. You see, there's actual evidence for what we believe. 
I I get if you're 2,000 years removed and you're not going to take one second, not one second, to actually study historical evidence, I get that it's easy to look at the story and say, that's a myth, that's a legend, we have lots of those. But you're not dealing with the reality that it's an actual historical fact. And I get that for some people in the world, this is not a a book of of evidence. This is not a book of history that can be relied on. For you and I it is, isn't it? All right. Uh, For us it is. But I get that for the world it's not. And to that world, I would say apart from the Bible... Apart from any kind of Christian writings, it is an historical fact that a man named Jesus lived. It is an historical fact that he said he was the Son of God. It is an historical fact that he was crucified on a cross. And it was a historical fact that there were the reports. I didn't say it was a fact that he was resurrected. I said it's a fact that there are these reports of these appearances, these resurrections. No, 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 folks, you... You can reject the eyewitnesses, you can reject the evidence, but you can't just dismiss it and put it on the pile uh, of myths and legends. That's actual intellectual hypocrisy. Now, if you're going to reject the evidence, if you're going to reject the eyewitnesses, at some point you have to answer the question, why? There's not one or two people, there are hundreds of people saying they have seen this resurrected Jesus Christ. Why am I going to reject that? I, am, I, I got one good reason to reject it because I don't see anybody popping out of the grave. I mean, that's a pretty good starting point, isn't it? But, but they said that he did. Well, okay, what about these, what about these eyewitnesses? I mean, I, I think you can go deeper in this and you can understand more, but just real simple for today. One of three things is happening. They're lying, they've been deceived, or they're telling the truth, right? I mean, where else do you put an eyewitness account? They're lying, they're deceived, or they're telling the truth. And it's possible that they were deceived. It's, it's, I guess there's this idea, I actually think it takes more faith in this than it does to believe in the resurrection, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And, and that after he got into the tomb, he just kind of revived and then he ran around the countryside telling people not that he had survived. It's a whole different thing to tell somebody I have survived what I went through and saying I conquered death. He presented himself in a way that people believed he conquered death. If he had just survived, he'd not be running around the countryside telling people what he conquered. He'd be down at MCV for the next six to seven weeks, more than likely unconscious in ICU. That's a historical fact. That's not debatable by what we know he went through on the cross. So he didn't deceive people. Well, well maybe, maybe they put together, they being whoever they is, some kind of elaborate hoax and, and made people think, well, yeah, pop, I, I guess it could. You know, there's actually psychological research of mass deception when, when people have been deceived, when, when people have been fooled. And none of what has happened here meets any of, of that criteria, meets any of those definitions. You know, Jesus appeared to individuals. He appeared to, to small groups. He appeared, we read here, to a group of 500 at one time. 
He appeared in the daytime. He appeared at nighttime. He, he appeared at, at different emotional settings. Sometimes they were grieving. Sometimes they were excited. I mean, I mean, the whole concept of being able to deceive masses of people, none of the real definition for that is there. It's just not likely that he deceived. Now, they could know that he's not alive and they could be lying. Yeah, but then you've got to answer the question, why are so many of them willing to die for what they know to be a lie? Ten of the original 11 disciples were martyred. They were imprisoned and they were executed because they were running around telling people they'd seen Jesus alive. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe in his brother when he was walking around before the resurrection, after he sees it, but he died, he's the first person, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the first person killed for being a follower of Jesus Christ. First leader of the, of the church. Why would he die for what he knows isn't true? Paul. Paul became a, a, a leader. He ran around telling this story and Rome arrested him and Rome beheaded him because he told this. Why? Why are people willing to die for what they know is a lie? Now I get a lot of times we just assume what we see is the way it's always been. So maybe they look at American Christianity. I know why they're willing to die. Because man, I'll tell you what, this Christianity is big money. Big, big, big business in this Christian thing. You know, and sadly, I understand why somebody might look at the church today with that kind of uh, uh, skepticism. That, that's sad to say. But that has nothing to do with what's going on right here. Nobody here is profiting a single penny. Nobody here is making any money. As a matter of fact, the most profitable thing they can do is not tell anybody they've seen the resurrected Christ. Because that seems like a pretty quick trip to being executed. And they didn't all die. Not every single one of them died because they were saying that. Some were just imprisoned. Some, some were just mocked and, and run out of town. They paid a high price and profited nothing. It really doesn't add up to say all these people are lying. Folks, as you continue to work the information, you really do get to a place where you say, you know, probably the safest intellectual assumption notice I said assumption I didn't say fact probably the safest intellectual assumption as you look at all the evidence is that they were running around telling people that Jesus was alive because he was because they saw him conquer sin and death and hell and they were giving testimony to what they saw and they would give that testimony even if it cost their lives Rising from the grave, he conquered sin and death and hell for you and me. You know, that not only helps us kind of sort through religions, sort through the ideas of mankind, doesn't, doesn't that even kind of help us land on what we believe in the Bible? I mean, let's be honest, even in the church, even among gatherings of believers, we might say, you know, do we... Do we really believe God created the world? I mean, isn't there a lot of science that says something else? Do we believe God created the world? Do we, do we believe he purposely, intentionally, in a single event, created a man and, and a woman? Do we believe God created marriage? It didn't just happen. I, you know, hey, how do, we, how do we do? No, created marriage. Do we believe that? Jesus did. The guy who conquered the grave, he believed those things. Do, I, do you believe that whole Noah and the ark thing? Jesus did. 
You believe that? What's that guy's name? Jonah? Spent three days in the belly of a whale? No, come on. That's a little bit like a fairy tale, isn't it? Jesus believed it. I don't know, folks. Does this sound a little cliche If it was good enough for Jesus... If he believed it and he's the guy who has all authority and power, I don't know, seems like a pretty safe bet to go with that. I'm going to go with what that guy believes. Jesus Christ. You know what else Jesus taught? He said this. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one. That's a huge word, two words, isn't it? Only five letters, but it's huge. Our society would not only say it's huge, it would say it's extremely intolerant and therefore could not be right. No one, no, 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 no one good person, no one bad person, no one religious person, no one irreligious person, no one 1,500 years ago, no one 1,500 years from now. Let me just boil this down for y'all. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know if that's intolerant or not. I don't know if that's nice or not. I I just know this. He's the only one who died for my sins on a cross. He is the only one who went to the place of the dead for my sins. He is the only one, as the best I can tell with the evidence, who ever conquered the grave. That is the one who said, I am the way. There is a way. Isn't it interesting? We'll get all caught up on him saying no other way works, but we miss the fact that he says, but I am the way for everyone. I am the way for everyone. He says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, nothing puts you beyond the reach of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. The way and the truth and the life is open to everyone. Have you received the gospel? Have you turned from sin? Have you turned from yourself? Your own ideas of of what God is. Your own ideas of what he should be satisfied with. Your own ideas of, of the afterlife. To listen to the one who died for you. And what he said about God. And what he said about sin. And what he said about the afterlife. Have you turned from sin and self. To place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what he did for you. If you're here today and you want to receive the gospel into your life, I want to say a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer. It's a prayer much like I prayed when I asked Jesus into my life, when I received the gospel some 35 years ago. And if that's the desire of your heart right now, then you just let my prayer become your prayer. Say, well, does that work? Hey, don't get caught up in the prayer. Don't get caught up in the words. What did we just say in Romans 10, 13? The Bible says... Whoever calls. That's what prayer is. It's a way of calling out to God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. That's a guarantee for you today. I want to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And and I'm going to just tell you right now, kind of warn you where we're going. I want you to leave your heads bowed even when I'm done praying. You'll kind of understand why in just a moment. But if you want to receive the gospel, you just let this prayer become yours. Jesus, I have sinned. I come to you for the forgiveness you offer through what you did for me on the cross. 
and in Hades and in the resurrection. I do believe you're the Son of God. I do believe you rose again. Live in me and help me live for you. Thank you for loving me, forgiving me. Thank you for making me your own child for all eternity. Now with heads still bowed, eyes still closed, I, I, I want to challenge you with this. In Mark chapter 8 verse 38, Jesus says, do not be ashamed of me. It's so sad that he has to say that to us, isn't it? And he says it because clearly we have shown a tendency to, when we get out there in the world, to get a little squeamish, to get a little quiet, not really sure we want to be known this way. I mean, let's be honest, folks. It's, it's maybe even why we wouldn't invite somebody to Easter Sunday because I just don't want to get that whole conversation started. Jesus says, do not be ashamed of me. If you just prayed that prayer, I, I would like to help you take some real small steps at not being ashamed, at, at, at beginning a life where you say, I'm proud to belong to Jesus. So what I want you to do first, would you just let one person in the room know that you just received the gospel? Would you let me know and would you just slip your hand up into the air? If you just prayed that, okay, they're going, going up. Okay, all, okay I, I can't count them all now at this point. We had, I think, about 14 at the last hour and I think we're probably over that here, okay, hands are going up. I just received the gospel. You can put your hand down. Now, I want to I, I ask you, if, if this is something you just did for the first time, you just, you just became a child of God, a follower of Christ, if you just raised your hand, I want to ask you to take another. I think this is a small step. I want to ask you, would you be willing to stand up? And everybody's heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. But what you'll do by standing up is you'll let the other people just like you who also just prayed this prayer know. In other words, you're going to let your brand new brothers and sisters, people who have just done what you've done. So if you just raised your hand, you, you received the gospel, would you stand up and, and just look around and let each other know? Look, there we go. They're coming up. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, people are six, standing up around. Okay, y'all see each other? Give each other a little smile. You've done this together. Okay, now for those of you standing, I want to ask you, yeah, go ahead and stay standing this time. Everybody's, nobody's looking. I want to ask you to take one more. This is a little bit bigger step. But you know, the Bible wants you to profess your faith, to, to, to let people know that you belong to Christ. And ultimately where that happens is in the waters of baptism. And you, and you don't have to make that decision right now. That, that's not what's being asked of you. But what I was wondering is, would you take a step toward that? And I'd like to ask you, and in a moment we're going to pray for you. You see Pastor Mike standing right here at the back in the center aisle. If you would just take a step toward, go over to him. And when he gets back there, he's going to talk with you just for a moment uh, about what baptism is, about how you can make that decision and, and see if that's something you want to do. You don't have to, but I want to encourage you to take a step to understanding what that is about. So we're going to pray for you. And as we're praying, go ahead and gather up your stuff. And, and head over to Mike right now. And church family, let's pray for these that have stood. Heavenly Father, we just come before you for right, these right now that have just received the gospel. And I pray they're going to know you always as their very best friend in life. They're going to know your power, your presence, your goodness. Oh Lord, I, I pray this week is going to be a profound week of you becoming so real in their lives. 
Lord, I pray you'll guide them as they maybe make a decision about following you in the waters of baptism. And God, we just thank you that you love and you forgive and you receive people every day as we receive the gospel. God, you bless them and care for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.